0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Eastern family, thanks for listening and being part of the Radio Voice of Eastern Airlines. Thank you for joining us for Episode 70 from the Eastern Files. This program is dedicated to memories, stories, and articles appearing in Eastern publications such as Repartee, the Retired Eastern Airline Pilots Association, and books by former Eastern employees and authors. We want to keep the great history of Eastern Airlines for all to share and keep the legacy of this proud airline. Today's From the Eastern Files brings you the early history of our great airline and the aircraft it flew. The next two readings are taken from Robert J. Serling's book, From the Captain to the Colonel, and J.E.B. Davies' book, Eastern, An Airline and Its Aircraft. Before we start, let's listen to an Eastern commercial.
0: fly away, it's so easy to do, easter has got the right time, and the right place.
1: Back in the 1960s, Malcolm McIntyre was president of Eastern in the early 60s, and the first equipment decision McIntyre made also was of the stopgap variety. He ordered 15 Boeing 720 jetliners, a slightly smaller version of the Boeing 707, 12 to be delivered before the end of 1961 and the remainder of early 1963. Of the 15, however, 10 would be owned by the Prudential Insurance Company and leased back to Eastern. Charlie Frosch didn't really like the idea of the 720. He considered it underpowered and not really designed for EAL's route structure, but he agreed with Mr. Mack that the Boeing had one more major advantage. It was available for quick delivery, and could serve as an interim jet until Douglas could fill the rest of Eastern's DC-8 orders. The 720 literally was an off-the-shelf airplane. Frosch's heart and soul were wrapped up in another Boeing design, the three-engine Boeing 727, whose design carried considerable Frosch input. The 727 concept dated back to 1956, when Boeing immersed in the the 707 program still found time for some preliminary design work on a smaller, short-to-medium-range jet transport. In June of 1959, Frosch told a top Boeing engineer that Eastern would be interested in such an airplane. He mentioned that it might be something like the French Caravelle, whose twin engines were aft-mounted on the fuselage, except he preferred three engines, thus leading Boeing to ask the obvious question, where the hell do you figure we can put the third engine? Boeing, from the start, envisioned the two-engine design, but Frosch, with support from TWA, was adamant on rejecting this plan. He pointed out that Eastern would never operate two-engine equipment on an overwater route such as New York to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and it would have to have four engines, or preferably three. United, incidentally, was insisting on four, and American wanted two. The argument was going on heatedly when uh, Britain suddenly announced plans to build A three-engine jet called the Trident, and Frosch didn't let Boeing forget that if the British could do it, the third engine was buried in and was fed air by a duct hooked to an inlet on top of the rear fuselage that we could also, or Boeing could also do it. Frosch kept pouring ideas, suggestions, and demands into the Seattle hatchery, he wanted the original cabin design lengthened by 40 inches, and he proposed a T-tail that would r- raise the surfaces clear of jet stream vibration. He insisted on oversized wheel brakes, and above all, on performance characteristics that would let the plane utilize LaGuardia with its relatively short runways. There would be no compromise on this demand, he informed Boeing. To meet that specification, Boeing redesigned the wing, installing triple slotted rear flaps, which achieved the near impossible task of turning a wing swept back thirty two degrees for high speed uh, cruise into a wing with a seventy five percentage greater area for low speed approaches. to this design, Boeing added forward edge flaps as well, leading one pilot to comment after his first 727 flight on this airplane you don't lower the flaps you disassemble the whole damn wing. When United and American finally gave in on the three engine concept the 727 was set for production and an honored place in aviation history. Today back when this book was written today it's the best-selling jet transport that was ever built, and by any standard of measurement can be called legitimately the DC-3 of the jet age. Eastern ordered 40, but only after McIntyre went to the mat with Captain Eddy in one of the worst arguments they were to have during Mr. Max's tenure with Eastern. The recommendation for 40 aircraft purchase came from Lethridge who at the time was executive vice president in charge of schedules, planning, properties, and community relations. In addition, he proposed taking an option on 10 more planes, and McIntyre bought the entire plan. I guess we'd better go see the captain on this, McIntyre suggested. "Lethridge will never forget the meeting. Rickenbacker listened for a few minutes and then shook his head. You don't need more than 20, he decreed positively. Lethbridge was stunned by McIntyre's uh, when he became angry. The session degenerated into acrimonious name-calling, and because so heat, it became so heated that at one point McIntyre was threatening to resign if the captain didn't accept his plan. It was Lethbridge who finally calmed both of them down by employing a little strategy he had learned from Paul Bratton. If things are going wrong with the the captain and he gets uh, irritable, Bratton had advised, just close your briefcase and tell him, that's it, sir. Nine times out of ten, he'll back off. While Mr. Mack and EVR were yelling at each other, Lethbridge suddenly started gathering his papers on the 727 and putting them back into his briefcase. What the hell do you think you're doing, EVR demanded. I guess I just lost the argument, Captain. My people have been working on this for months, and I think we're right, but you think we're wrong, and that's that. Let me have those papers, Lefty, Rickenbacker growled. McIntyre, sensing the wind shift, nodded. Uh, given the papers Lethridge complied this was on a friday and monday morning captain Eddy summoned them to his office go ahead on your on your 40 airplanes he announced i don't know about those 10 options let's just wait a while mcintyre wasn't bluffing when he threatened to resign he knew boeing would not go into 727 production unless it He received orders for at least 100 airplanes, and Pat Patterson had told him United wanted only 20, with an option for another 20. A firm Eastern order for 40 plus 10 options would bring the conditional total up to 90, and Boeing was willing to accept that. Mr. Mack knew that if Eastern reduced its order, the whole 727 program probably would go out the window. And he also knew that EAL badly needed the airplane. Under those circumstances, he was very ready to challenge Rickenbacker, even to the extent of a him or me ultimatum to the directors. Interesting. Now, we'll skip over in uh, the book uh, Robert Serling wrote uh, to uh, another part uh, uh, From the captain to the colonel, throughout the latter half of 1976 and early 1977, the three U.S. manufacturers made their pitch pilgrimages to to Miami, usually meeting with Simons alone, as Charlie Simons alone, but occasionally with Borman sitting in on their presentations. McDonnell Douglas touted its DC nine Super eighty, typically another of its rubber airplanes with a DC nine fuselage, stretched for a length that was to a length that was only fourteen feet shorter than the original DC eight. The Super eighty, however, would have a new technology wing for fuel economy and more powerful engines. Than the smaller DC 9 line. And because it was a DC 9 derivative, possessing the manufacturing advantage of considerable commonality, McDonnell Douglas was promising early 1980 for delivery. Boeing had three designs on its Seattle drawing board the 757, a two engine concept that combined the 727 200's fuselage, only longer. With a new type of wing airfoil said to be two years ahead of everyone else. The 767, also twin-engined, but a wide body, and the 777 identical to the 767, except for three engines and greater range. Lockheed was pushing a smaller version of the L-1011, like Douglas, it had gone the derivative uh, route. By January 1977, Simons and Borman had their doubts about all these designs. No single airplane met all five EAL requirements. The DC-9 Super 80 attracted some interest because it was a new technology airplane with reliability, a relatively early delivery assurance, but Simons was lukewarm. It's too damn small, he told Borman. In the configuration, We'd want it, it would have only 133 seats. And that's fewer than what we already have in the Boeing 727 200s. As far as capacity goes, the Boeing 757 is exactly the size we're looking for. Boeing mused, It's too far down the line, Charlie. Boeing hasn't even decided whether it'll build the 757. Simon nodded. Frank, we really ought to look at that, a, a, at, at that uh, A300. What would you say to inviting Airbus Industries in? It's already flying in Europe. Borman wasn't quite sure. Airbus Industries, Industries was French, and while he had absolutely no anti-French prejudices, he had once met General de Gaulle and got along extremely well with uh, with uh, De Gaulle. He knew that foreign-made transports had never won much popularity in the U.S. Britain's Viscount and the Bach 111 aircraft failed to put much of a dent in the American air carrier market. Not only United had bought the French-built Caravelle, but he finally considered to, consented to at least letting air, Airbus make its pitch for its Aircraft. The A300's initial salesman was Roger Battelle, vice president and general manager of Airbus Industries, who also happened to be one of the aircraft's designers. He made the first presentation almost entirely by himself, and despite a considerable language barrier, he impressed Eastern officials sufficiently to warrant further meetings. Into the latter came George Ward, former president of American Airlines, a jovial, extremely effective horse trader who had joined Airbus as head of its North American sales operation. The first day Ward showed up, Borman's opening remarks was, why would we want to buy your airplane? Ward had done his homework, because if you don't, you're dead but it wasn't as simple as that. First, Eastern was short of capital, and financing would play a large part in the negotiations, regardless of how much Eastern liked the Airbus. Second, the A300 was not quite what Simons had in mind. It carried almost 250 passengers, putting it close to the L-1011's capacity, and it was just too big. Simons kept pointing out that Eastern wanted a plane that would could replace the seven twenty seven two hundreds on this aircraft's current route, enabling Eastern to turn to substitute in turn to substitute the seven twenty-seven two hundred for its seven twenty-seven one hundreds. Patel said he understood, but suggested that if Eastern really needed a smaller airplane than the A three hundred Airbus was willing to adjust the price until traffic grew sufficiently to justify the bigger aircraft. Both Borman and Simons were intrigued, in effect. Airbus was proposing to charge Eastern an initial price reflecting a 160, uh, correction, 170-seat airplane, and if traffic grew as expected, the airline would pay an additional amount later on. Word called it operating support, and nothing like it had ever been proposed before. Airbus Industries' willingness to set this kind of precedent gave the Borman-Simons team another idea. Knowing that the French wanted very badly to crack the U.S. market, they asked if Airbus would be willing to let Eastern test four A300s on EAL's routes for six months prior to any final contact. Our contract. This would be another first, and from the initial French reaction, Eastern might as well have suggested moving the Eiffel Tower to Miami Beach. Simons kept pressing. All we're proposing, he insisted, is that we form a joint venture. We're naturally concerned about introducing a foreign-built airplane. Remember that neither the Viscount Caravelle or BAC-111 were particularly successful operating in an American environment. If you think your product is that good, we'll be the ones to prove it. And it'll cost you a hell of a lot more to advertise the A300s in the United States than it will be to loan us four airplanes, which will be four flying advertisements in themselves. Your part is to supply the aircraft for six months of testing over our route systems. We'll supply the crew training and the maintenance. The French representatives looked dubious, but now it was Ward who was intrigued. He had the advantage of understanding the U.S. carriers and their operating problems. He knew Eastern's financial landscape. He was aware that There was always the chance of passenger prejudice against a foreign-made airliner. Between his pride and faith in the A300 and his own U.S. airline background, he was the ideal go-between in the touchy negotiations. He was not afraid to voice agreement with Eastern's position and simultaneously protect his own company's interests. Most important, he recognized that Eastern was skeptical and that the six-month test period was a logical way to overcome the doubts. There were countless details to work out and major decisions yet to be made, but the tryout agreement reached in August of 1977 was crucial. Eastern shipped a number of pilots and mechanics over to France for crew and maintenance training. Test flights began in November, and on December 13, 1977, Eastern started operating the four borrowed A300s over high-density route segments. It didn't take the whole six months for Frank Foreman to make up his mind. From all sides came rave pilots, mechanics, and passengers. A, fan, a handful of passengers uh, reacted neg- negatively. The complaints coming from those who said it was unpatriotic for Eastern to be operating an airplane not built in the U.S. Borman was concerned about this from the start of Airbus Airbus negotiations. He already had evidence that it might be a public relations problem. Western Airlines had seriously considered the A300 but backed away, partially because it had been clobbered by angry protests that the Los Angeles-based carrier was sinning against flag and the country. Borman figured that ideologically be- ideological beliefs can be more volat- volatile in Southern California. Also, took comfort from the fact that the anti Airbus letters coming into Eastern were a trickle compared to Western's flood. Yet he kept these decidedly minority new views in mind, discussing their implications with Bob Christian, his PR vice president. For what he also feared was that they might presage criticism from Congress if EAL went ahead and actually bought the A300. What was all important to Eastern, however, was the plane's performance under exposure to -to day-to-day Eastern operations. After the first three months, its grades in every category amounted to straight A's. The Airbus complied the best reliability record of any airplane in EAL's fleet, achieved impressive fuel savings, using 30% less than the Boeings and 20% less than the Lockheeds, and overall provided lower operating costs than even Borman and Simons had hoped for. Its range was perfect. For the vital New York Miami nonstop market. One of the few complaints concerned the restrooms. They were placarded, placarded toilet in accordance with European custom and had to be Americanized to lavatory. But while the number one man at Eastern was convinced, others weren't. Foreman's own planning department was nervous. They'd be for it one day and against it the next day. Even Simons had jitters, worrying whether the Airbus might be too big, about reaction to a foreign airliner and how the airline was going to pay for what would be a massive investment. Charlie is the best financial man in the industry, Borman remarked, but he had dealt with adversity for so long that he really felt these things. Now, that's our story from the captain to the colonel reading uh, by Robert J. Serling, the author of the book, whom I had the pleasure of having on my jump seat on one flight from Atlanta to um, Tucson, Arizona, where he had his home. And uh, Robert was, uh, Bob Serling was, of course, the brother of Rod Serling, the um, maker of uh, or the director of the the uh, series, the very successful series, Twilight Zone. Uh, Robert Serling wrote several of the uh, episodes of that very successful television series, Twilight Zone. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to us today. And and before uh, we sign off, uh, I've got two very important people to me. And I will have to apologize to both of them for being a little bit tardy. Um, You might say I overslept at the microphone. (laughs) Hello, Don. Hello, Dorothy.
0: Hello there. Glad you're on, Neil.
1: (laughs) Very informative.
0: I really liked listening to that. That was uh, such a good story. Wow.
1: Yeah. It, well, is, I don't know uh, how many
0: people know all of that either.
1: Well, we've got some more information about the airplanes on our next uh, uh, old—not old time, but uh, from the Eastern files. Uh, Don, did you want to say something?
2: Uh, no, no, I Chuck.
1: Very. Important. Oh, Chuck, I didn't—I didn't see your uh, phone pop up. Yes, Chuck, go ahead.
2: Well, I've, as you know, I worked on the A three hundred. Uh, The L-1011 hangar was the place that they brought it because of the wingspan. And uh, Actually, they had one of them sitting out next uh, from the uh, 727 maintenance hangar between that and the the fence, uh, sat out there for about three or four months. People came and looked at it and walked through it and uh, just kind of gave it a good look over. Um, As far as I'm concerned, I liked it because um, the plane was basically taken from a lot of different plane ideas and then really upgraded to a really nice aircraft to work on. Um, uh, We didn't really have a lot of problems with it that you would have with a new airplane. Um, Most of the systems have already been uh, tested out on other kinds of aircraft, but I like the airplane. Um, I was very fortunate. As you know, I was taxiing run-up for the L-1011 hangar, and then when the 57s came in, they sent us the class uh, with the pilots, actually, and we learned to taxi the the 757. It was really a a nice airplane for the mechanics to to work on, and in my particular case, uh, I like taxiing it. It's really nice.
1: Yeah. I, well, um, you know, I
2: really chuck them for buying it.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I flew the airplane for about a year by mistake, and when I say by mistake, is I turned in a bid that I wanted an upgrade from the airplane I was flying, which was a Boeing seven five seven. I love that airplane, and to this day, it's the greatest airplane I ever flew. I flew them all, just about, well, all the jets, anyhow, and uh, the A three hundred came along and. I went to school on it, and I flew it for about a year until I could get off of it because it was about to kill me. But it was an ideal airplane for a lot of things that Eastern used. And, uh, for instance, uh, Borm- Borman uh, signed a contract with Consolidated Freight Line c- to carry freight in the uh, cargo of the compartments. They were mammoth compartments uh, for an airplane that size and, um, and passengers. Uh, we're uh, we we're flying at forty nine dollars per leg, and two legs from the east coast to San Francisco for forty nine plus forty nine because uh, all the airplanes stopped in Houston where the terminal was uh, for changing airplanes and cargo and freight and it was a it was an operation that was all night long, and it was dubbed the Moonlight Special, and it was a great airplane for two years we operated. The A300 only on that on that uh, route, to the uh, the uh, Moonlight Special, and it, I was flying all night in those days. And I decided I'd had enough night flying. I wanted to go back for my 757, and so <laughs> I I did. I went back to it. So. You know,
0: but you the know, airplane was
1: like a good that. airplane. It wasn't a high altitude airplane because of the wing. It was a very fat, chubby wing, and it couldn't. It it, it didn't have the airfoil. That the uh, sleek seven fifty sevens and and uh, DC eights had, and uh, so it couldn't operate at very high altitudes. It that it, it did get up at uh, you know it was, I guess, uh, the mid uh, the low thirties uh, thousand feet was the operational optimum altitude was about twenty eight thousand feet. So uh, that was my only complaint with that airplane. You couldn't get up high enough to get out of the weather. Sometimes you just had to fly along and get beat with the uh, turbulence. But uh, I
2: think one of this Chuck, one of the funny things that happened with that airplane is if you went into the restrooms and flushed the uh, johns, <laughs> they're they're, um, they're they're not water operated. <laughs> they, are, suction, uh, they use a vacuum yeah. system.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: and it makes a lot of noise.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's our that's our show for today And, you know, keeping our Eastern family informed Is of the greatest importance to the radio show And uh, we hope that you'll join us Thursdays, every other Thursday When we broadcast from the Eastern Files like today And thank you for joining us today for our broadcast from the Eastern Files Which we bring to you every other Thursday And Yale Old Time Radio continues to play the music
0: Of our Eastern
1: years, and that's what Don and I, (laughs) we really enjoy that series. And our next old-time music series, I hope I'm right, Dorothy, is uh, old-time gospel songs.
0: Right, you are indeed. And that show will be aired
1: June 27th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Monday, June 24th, we present games our mothers and fathers played. And we hope you'll enjoy uh, and listen In at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Uh, call in 213-816-1611, and you can be on the show. If you have a story or memory you'd like to share with our Eastern family, we'd certainly like to hear it. Uh, And from you, if we can. From the Eastern Files, we'd like to broadcast it during one of our shows. Either you sharing your memory live, telling us about it. Or send it to us, and we'll broadcast your story on the air. Send your request to host at com. That's host at com. And until then, we sign off, as we do with each broadcast, by saying goodbye, Eastern family. We love you, Eastern.
2: Yeah, we love you, Eastern.
1: Good, good show, uh, Neil. Good show, Neil. Really Very nice, Neil.
2: Very good Thank you. Very yeah, good. Well.
0: So you.